Welcome again. It's wonderful to be with you tonight. My name is Sarah Bachelard. I'm an Anglican priest uh, based in Australia, a theologian, and um, I'm also delighted to welcome and to be sharing this um, occasion with James Allison, um, Catholic theologian and priest based in Madrid. Um, both of us with slightly complicated relationships, shall we say, to our ecclesial institutions. And James and I have been speaking about how we go about our conversation this evening. And I want to give a brief introduction so you know how we're planning to shape our time together. Our title for this evening is One in Christ. Why do LGBTQI people feel excluded by the churches? The first part of this title comes from uh, One in Christ comes from St Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a passage in which Paul is urging the Gentile believers in Galatia to resist the pressure being applied from certain teachers to put themselves under the authority of the law of Moses particularly the requirements to do with circumcision and dietary restriction. Paul exhorts them to hold fast to the faith that their standing with God, their righteousness, has nothing to do with the successful observance of these legal or ritual practices. He reminds them that they did not receive the Holy Spirit by doing the works of the law, but by believing the gospel, that is, by putting their faith in Christ, sourcing their identity in him, discovering themselves accepted and called by him. He argues that a consequence of this faith in Christ is that distinctions that have mattered under the law, between circumcised and uncircumcised, for example, are no longer of ultimate relevance. For, he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And this means, he goes on, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It's a stunning vision of a new human sociality under God. But we Christians, it turns out, are slow learners. The second part of our title, Why Do LGBTQI People Feel Excluded by the Churches, is at one level a no-brainer. They feel excluded because all too often they are. At the level of doctrine and practice, whether overtly or covertly, most of the churches have deemed anything other than binary gender identity and what we now call heterosexuality to be in some sense disordered, deviant, and so sinful. In other words, difference from what is deemed normative in terms of sexuality and gender identity is understood to be spiritually problematic, an impediment to the working of the, spirits in, the spirit in one's life, and so to the possibility of salvation, growth, and full participation in the life of the church. 
Well, it took a long struggle for the early church as a whole to realise that being uncircumcised was no impediment to salvation and so to full membership of the body of Christ. After an even longer struggle, still not over in some quarters, the church has been coming to the view that being a woman is no impediment to full participation in its life and ministry. Tonight, we're here to explore the struggle to realise the full belonging, participation and contribution of gay, lesbian and bisexual, transgender, queer and intersex persons to the life of the Christian community and so to the mission of God in the world. As James and I considered the shape of tonight, it seemed right to break it into three parts. First, and this will be the focus of James' remarks, involves the work of what we might call reimagination. We need to understand what Christianity is all about before we understand how the church has gone theologically so awry on this question. For healing, we need to unbind the consciences of all of us, straight and gay, which have been formed or rather deformed by these theological mis missteps, and so to see more clearly the truth of the gospel. The second part, and this will be my contribution, is to say a little more about how we might live into our promised oneness in Christ, and particularly, particularly to focus on how contemplative practice or meditation is intrinsic to this work. So with that introduction, let me welcome James to the lectern. The last time Sarah and I appeared together, it was in Canberra. So things are, the world is small, and it's lovely to be welcomed to my city rather than the, <laughs> rather than the other way around. Good. Well, rather as Sarah suggested, what I'd like to start with, rather than from looking at the LGBTQI question at all, is basic Christianity. Because it seems to me that that's actually the, the key issue <laughs> that's going on here. What, in fact, is basic Christianity all about? As we understand that, so we're going to understand this issue, or this collection of issues, better. So just to remind us that at the very beginning of Christianity, what we have is Jesus going to a place of shame and degradation and death, willingly, allowing this to happen, and having explained to his friends and disciples beforehand that this was going to happen, and they're not really getting it. Uh, they're hoping that this was going to lead to some last-minute turnabout, and that not happening. And him, therefore, going to the place of the cast-out one, John's Gospel rescues this phrase from Isaiah, he was counted among the transgressors. So, you know, think 
Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey. Being counted amongst the transgressors is a very nasty thing to happen to you. You may deserve it, but it's a very nasty thing to happen to you. It's not just a little label. Um, cast out. Ashamed, put to death, under a curse. Look, Book of Deuteronomy is perfectly clear. One who is hanged on a wood is under a curse from God. So this is the space that he went to occupy. And as we know, on the third day, God revealed himself as this man alive, not bound by death. And the slow-running shock of that was that it meant we were suddenly, and for the first time ever, given an icon of God, an image of God, what God is actually like. Jesus had said beforehand that he's the only way to the Father, this is the only image, there, isn't, there aren't other bits of God, as it were, around the edge of that. There's now this icon of God, the one image of the Father. Um, and this image does not look like anything to do with either religious or political power. This is not, if you like, a grandlier version of the high priest or a grandlier version of the Roman procurator standing in for the very best forms, both of civilian and religious law, available at the time. And it's not that, the very best forms. Roman law may have been brutal and all that, but it was a vast improvement on other law forms that were around at the time. <laughs> the Jewish law, the law of Moses, considered the best religious law. Both of them managed to put this man to death. Neither of them, in the end, was able to avoid being run by the mob. We have no king but Caesar. <laughs> you get this wonderful irony in John's Gospel, where, first of all, Pilate says, well, why don't you put him to death? And they say, uh, we're not allowed to, it's illegal for us to put any man to death. And then a few verses later, they're saying, uh, according to our law, this man must die. <laughs> so St. John captures that imagery beautifully. So he's put to his death. And it means that the presence of the crucified and risen Lord as the only icon of God automatically casts shade, to use the modern idiom, on all religious and political power. There is no longer any viable analogy between Caesar and God or between Caiaphas and God. <laughs> if we use words like king and priest of Jesus, which we do, it's in a very dangerously ironic sense. And we should always remember that, because what he was, from the point of view of one of them, was seditious, and from the other, a blasphemer. In other words, 
our starting point for knowledge of God is a seditious blasphemer. And it's hugely important that we remember that. The great and bizarre mystery of Christianity is that it de-legalizes God. God is not a legislator. If you want God as a legislator, then go to Moses or Muhammad. The image of God is that of someone who has laws that a human intermediary brings. Jesus is not a legislator. In fact, he is the victim of legislators. And his new commandment, which is, you will be my friends if you do what I am doing to them, means constantly be prepared to allow yourself to be run over by the bus of law in order to show how much you love people who are being oppressed by it. This is very weird, and we forget how weird it is because Christianity has become imprisoned by morality in our world. And this is where I really want to hone in for us today. You can see the two signs of this collapse, of the beginning of the shocking re realization this is what is going on. One, in the case of Peter's vision on the roof of uh, Simon the Tanner before he goes off to the house of Cornelius the Centurion when he's instructed to eat all the prohibited things and says, no, far be it from me, I will not touch and eat what God has called profane and unclean. And God says, do not call profane and unclean that which I call clean. And on the third time, because he hears a loud voice outside, and St Luke is very canny, he puts exactly the same verb in the mouth of the visitors from Cornelius as he's put in the mouth of the cock. The previous time Peter had denied something three times. It's exactly the same verb in Greek. Uh, when he hears this loud cry from outside, he is reminded that the last time he was standoffish about something, it was because he was not prepared to stretch into the place of shame and stand with the one who was there. So when he goes to the house of Cornelius, he is prepared to, and he starts undergoing the wrench of being with disgusting people. Because if you're brought up in a holiness code, it doesn't just feel like being slightly naughty. It feels a bit wrenching. As indeed some straight people found the first time they thought of going to a gay marriage. Ooh, how could I do that? And then they went and discovered, yeah, actually it was okay. But that was the kind of wrench that St. Peter had to go. And he made the first and only scriptural, papally infallible remark that we have there, which, which is, uh, God has told me to call no human impure or profane. And God has shown, shown me he has no partiality amongst the nations. And with that, he opened heaven to the Gentiles. And we have, of course, been backsliding ever since on that one. But that was the first and only biblical use of the Petrine uh, command for the keys that we have. And with Paul, we have it in a slightly different sense. With him, of course, he'd been a very good practicing Jew, and for him it was the realization that actually, in his excellence, 
he had been persecuting God. God was the one who had been persecuting him. When Jesus appears to him, he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So, Yahweh Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is, this is the great shock. That all his goodness, all his obedience, had been as nothing. It had actually led him completely up the garden path into actually persecuting the God who he thought he'd been uh, serving. So he understood better than anyone that the consequence of this meant that everything, including that which was apparently God's law, couldn't hold up. Might have had its usefulness in the past, but couldn't hold up. So, when he has a discussion with the Corinthians, he's clearly taught them this because he's having a discussion with them about forms of behaviour, and they say to him, everything is lawful to me, because that's what he's taught them. And he says, yes, but not everything is helpful. That's one of the translations which we have. Not everything is beneficent, not everything is appropriate, not everything is for those from a Latin a country, Latin background, conveniente, not convenient in the English sense, which has something of a uh, sense of, you know, playing a game, <laughs> but something which does not quite fit. So you're saying, yeah, everything is lawful, but not everything is appropriate. And strangely enough, that little line <laughs> follows from exactly the same logic as Peter's vision. From the moment we have as our only icon of God a seditious blasphemer, and therefore from the moment it becomes clear that there is no such thing as either a divine analogy to civil law or a divine analogy to religious law, from the moment that becomes clear, then what is going to be the shape of being good has got to be discovered from within as what is helpful, convenient, appropriate, what sum fere in St Paul's language. And believe it or not, this is something which Christian tradition has actually remembered rather well. It's even developed a name for it, a bad name, because the name doesn't exactly say what we think it means. And that name is natural law, which is, as I will explain, neither natural law nor. <laughs> but in principle, it's the recognition that thanks to Jesus, there is no longer any specifically Christian morality any longer. There is only that which it is good for human beings to do and to be. And that that which it is good for human beings to do or to be can be known with difficulty, can be learnt over time, and that our knowing and learning this over time is actually an organic part of the life of the Spirit. Part of the life of the Spirit means actually finding ourselves on the inside of God's creative intelligence, referred to in the Scriptures as God's wisdom. Wisdom is God's creative intelligence, quite literally. 
<laughs> it's God's wisdom that brings everything into being, orchestrates everything. The whole point of wisdom is that everything that is glows gloriously because it gives off sparks, it dilates, it points up the presence of God in everything. Futility, vanity, the Hebrew reverse of that is the notion of uh, everything being there, everything created, somehow falling short of the mark, not quite, not quite, not quite giving off the spark that it's supposed to, so that it's all, uh, if you read the wonderful texts in the wisdom literature, the vanity, they all understand that, it's everything not quite getting there. Whereas the notion of wisdom is the stars singing with glory and everything else joining in. Everything that is, because God is after all the creator, everything that is resplendent with the light, enthusiasm, delight, joy of the creator. And part of the life of the spirit for us is precisely a certain conscious participation in God's wisdom. That definition which I've just quoted, a certain conscious participation in God's wisdom, is Aquinas. Just say, so you no, know, I'm not making this up. <laughs> he uses the, the term God's law, a certain intelligent participation in God's law, by which he means, as he has explained earlier, God's wisdom. Law in the sense of underlying logos or structure that holds, holds and brings everything into being. Does that make sense? Well, okay, given that, which we can now begin to see, yes, that makes sense. That is why, at least according to firm Catholic teaching, there is no specifically Christian morality. Why, as it were, various forms of, there's no such thing as Christian exceptionalism. It's only a question of what is actually good for humans. That's what counts. And this is something learnt over time and with difficulty and through love. We all know that. But mysteriously, <laughs> when it comes to matters LGBTQI, everyone says, yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay, except in this sphere. <laughs> is, that, is that your experience? <laughs> it's what I call backdoor Moses. Let's see if we can bring in Moses by the back door. Of course, we don't say that nowadays because most of us have forgotten that it has anything to do with Moses. But that was what had St. Paul riling against the Galatians. <laughs> no, no, no. You're going back to something extrinsic from outside yourselves to make you good. There ain't anything extrinsic to make you good. Actually, being good from an extrinsic sense doesn't matter. It's allowing yourselves to discover what it is to be good from the inside. <laughs> Life and spirit, <laughs> learning to love. It's the only thing that matters. Now, of course, don't, uh, don't cause scandal to people who uh, need this and that and the other and think that it's important that they wear this article of clothing or eat that sort of food. Don't, don't cause them scandal. But it's because causing people scandal is a bad thing, not because that thing is either good or bad. Does that, does that make sense? Well, there's an interesting history with this, and it seems 
that we began to get a slightly different picture when precisely because, if you like, of the sheer difficulty of the shock of the gospel, the apparent atheism that is brought about when morality is detached from a legislative God. This, it's no wonder that Christians in the early years were called atheists, not only because they refused to sacrifice the emperors, but if you have no <laughs> celestially given law system, what are you? By the standards of the ancient world, you're seriously secularizing. <laughs> well, so it's scarcely surprising that rather than following St. Paul on this, early Christianity fairly quickly followed his near contemporary Philo, the uh, Alexandrian Jewish philosopher who was very keen on demonstrating the superiority of the law of Moses to Greek philosophy, but making good use of Greek philosophy to show how it worked. And he's, he's a fascinating read for anybody who can bother. You can find all his texts free on the internet. No, no, you don't have to be a, a card-carrying member of the British Library or uh, anything like that. It's all easily available. But one of, the, one of the things that is really interesting is that he, because no doubt of life in Alexandria at the time, is really the first person to, to seriously get worked up about matters gay. Curiously, he was the first person to read the story of Sodom as having anything to do with homosexuality. The previous tradition, as you all know at this stage, read it, and the evidence that this is available in Prophet Ezekiel and the Book of Wisdom, and indeed in Jesus' own words, read it as uh, a sin of arrogance, pride, surfeit, and therefore inhospitality to foreigners. In other words, the package of our nations, our sodomitical nations from nowadays, like England and America and other rich nations that have a surfeit and keep out immigrants. Yeah? That was quite clearly how it was read. Until Philo, who started interpreting it, he, he was particularly obsessed by uh, acts that were not fertile. So he began the reading of the Sodom stories having something to do with problems of fertility. <laughs> Before, people hadn't bothered with that. But he saw the destruction caused by in Sodom as basically the claim that uh, everything ceased to be fertile thanks to these people's sins. And so began the link between morality and fertility, which was not part of the Jewish package before. <laughs> it's really quite interesting. And it wasn't until 100, 150 years later, in the second century, that authors like Clement of Alexandria and others began to create a structure of morality <laughs> linking the notion of the goodness of the act with relation to its possibility for fertility. The route from there to Humana Vitae is completely comprehensible. The bizarre thing, of course, is that if you read a text of, of Philo, he's quite clearly exactly the sort of Jewish interlocutor who Paul is arguing against <laughs> in the letters to the Romans when he talks about you know, women um, doing shameful things with other women or unnatural things with other women and men doing shameful things in themselves. Uh, he's quite clearly 
using the kind of critique of paganism that someone like Philo of Alexandria shared. And Philo has very similar passages. But unlike Philo, Paul at the end says, so, so who do you think you are who judge them? <laughs> because you do exactly the same things. <laughs> In other words, for Philo, for Paul, the whole point of that list of, uh, of um, pagan weirdnesses, and particularly cultic weirdnesses, and Philo has a very similar list. You know, they go into these orgiastic frenzies, and they cut off their dicks and things like that. It's very much the same, uh, very much the same typical Jewish preaching against pagans. And Paul, similar thing, as I said, then says at the end, well, 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 why do you judge them? Because when it comes down to the really important things, like being heartless and ruthless and gossips and slanderers and haters of your parents and disobedience, are exactly the same as they. In other words, it's not those silly things, it's the pattern of desire that matters. Whereas Philo, on the other hand, is very proud of Moses' legislation as forbidding all those things and saying, this is we must be good and obey Moses. So we have followed Philo rather than Paul. <laughs> it's weird, but true, because Paul was clearly playing ironic with that Jewish tradition. <laughs> he was clearly using it as a as a way to get at self-righteousness. That's always his, that's always his shtick. Philo's completely unbothered about self-righteousness. He's keen on showing that the Greek, uh, that, um, you know, Plato and Aristotle, they're fine in their own sweet way, but they actually do culminate in Moses, <laughs> who's the real legislator, and so we should go along with that. Okay, so we're dealing with the Christian tradition that's arisen since that time. That's, if you like, where it's in the world created by that that we have found the currents that have led us to our, our present impasse. So the question is, if that's the starting point, if that's where things have gone wrong, where do we go from here? Now, it's taken a very, very long time for them actually to come up and be able to say what's wrong. And you all know the, the phrase, I'll quote it back to you. Um, it's, a very, it's a very recent coinage, but in a sense it culminates, it's the culmination of the whole of that uh, tradition. And it's the phrase from the 1986 Vatican document which says, the homosexual tendency, while not in itself a sin, is nevertheless a more or less strong tendency towards acts that are intrinsically evil, and therefore <coughs> it, brackets, the homosexual tendency, close brackets, must be considered objectively disordered. You know that, you know that phrase. And the key two phrases in that, which we always remember, are intrinsically evil, referring to the acts, and objectively disordered referring to the tendency. In one sense, this is, this is quite a simple argument, not helped by the fact that we don't share the same use of words that the Vatican theologians share. But the, the simple, what, what, what that phrase, objectively disordered, means, means disordered with respect to its object. And it depends on quite a simple premise. Well, the premise is that there is a certain thing called a the sexual act such that all sexual acts 
should be the sexual act. And a the sexual act, by definition, is first of all designed for the purpose of reproduction. Secondly, and insofar as is bearable, nice and possible, also for the creation of some sort of affection, <laughs> what is now referred to as the unitive function of sex. But that's a, as it were, people have started emphasizing that more in the 20th century. But, but long ago, that was a, that was a very nice also ran. Um, <laughs> the key thing was the reproductive, the reproductive function. And they would say, this is obvious. Uh, someone would have said, you know, it's obvious that that's what the purpose of the sexual act is. It's the way this thing happens. It's the only way the human species is propagated. Um, and therefore, and this is where it seems strange to us, but therefore, following uh, an Aristotelian logic, if there is such a thing as a the sexual act, which is in principle good, which is in principle a good part of the created order with a good finality, which is creation, Therefore, part of it, giving forth the glory of God, is its proper use. But anything other than its proper use is, of course, a defection. Would that be the right word? A defection from what it's really meant to be. With the result that you get a thing called the sexual act, which in principle is good, if it's between two married people and open to the possibility of children. But you also get a whole series of deductions about things that are defects from it. Such as, for instance, acts that are between two married people, but uh, with some form of barrier impeding deliberately the possibility of reproduction. And so you get humana vitae which says, no, every act must in principle be open uh, to the possibility, or else it's not the sexual act. <laughs> and this is, uh, you know, it's, it's not a stupid argument. It's a weird one from our point of view. It's not stupid in that it does at least try to correspond to an understanding of natural law. There being something good <laughs> that must point up <laughs> the goodness of God. Does that make sense? You know, there actually being something intrinsically good within creation that's pointing up something beyond itself, so that there is an end, a finality, that is in itself part of the goodness of the thing itself. Does that, does that make sense? That's part of the Aristotelian uh, uh, worldview. And as I say, there's a part of that that I think and hope is going to be important to us, which is the notion that as we discover things which are good, we discover that they point to things beyond themselves. <laughs> that that is a good part, I hope, that we're discovering about being LGBTQ and I in the modern world, of why a different understanding of this intelligent participation in God's wisdom, aka natural law, is actually our friend. But from the point of view of those who developed it, it very quickly, therefore, became uh, a defensive position from which other things could be designated as objectively disordered, disordered with relation to their object. So you would understand that any form of deliberate 
that contraception in some way frustrates the purpose of the act, they would say. Uh, obviously, um, uh, uh, sexual acts between people of the same sex uh, frustrate the purpose of the act, according to that understanding. And it's also why you get uh, judgments to us that to us seem ludicrous, and rightly so, that suggest that actually uh, rape is less harmful than masturbation. <laughs> Because, at least in the case of rape, it is able to... You see that? You now understand why uh, moralists, uh, once they get down certain logical paths, come up with completely ludicrous <laughs> uh, statements. So you can, understand, you can understand how very cerebral males who don't actually... Uh, uh, they either have zero experience of sex or only same-sex experience of sex. <laughs> which they pretend not to have, are able to come up with such ludicrous... <laughs> are able to come up with such ludicrous uh, uh, remarks. But at least you can understand the, lo the logic uh, uh, of that. OK. Well, what's happened since that? And I don't want to you know, give a, a long history, but one of, the, one of the obvious things that has happened since that is that it's become perfectly clear to us that there is such a thing as sexual orientation. And the moment it's clear that there is such a thing as sexual orientation, the notion that you can hold a teaching about the sexual act and at the same time claim you are not saying anything about the being of the person disappears. Because it's perfectly clear that while making your logical deduction from the sexual act, you are in fact implying that a person who has the stable tendency to do something has as part of their being something that is an objective disorder in our sense. <laughs> something that makes of them someone with a pattern of desire that cannot be rescued, that is not available to alteration by grace. And therefore, you're effectively prohibiting them something against their natural way of being. Does that, does that become clear? So this, is, this falls short in two ways. This means that you've got either Moses by the back door or Calvin by the back door. Moses by the back door because you've got an extrinsic law in search of an intrinsic uh, defence. <laughs> an absolute prohibition which is trying to find a reason to maintain it. <laughs> yep. That's what I call Moses, Moses by the back door. Or Calvin by the back door. Something that although your official teaching and the Council of Trent's official teaching is that there is no such thing as an intrinsically depraved <laughs> desire. All human desire is in principle a good thing, however screwed up it is. You're saying all of that is true, of course. Grace does perfect nature, except in the case of gay people. Gay people have this particular uh, thing in them that is some part of nature, but it's not capable of being perfected by grace. <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. And therefore, the absolute prohibition is maintained. Okay. What, what's happened really over the last 50, 60, 70 years? Uh, yes, it seems to me, as to all of you, to be fairly obvious, we've started talking. Basically, 
that's it. The most important thing that has happened is you could keep some sense of the old world alive while everyone agreed that it was a taboo subject <laughs> and not really to be talked about, towards which you should be merciful, but it should not be talked about. And also you needed to protect people from the inconveniences of civil law until, in the case of this country, what is it, 60 years ago now? 67, Wolfenden? Is that 67 or 50 years ago? 60, 60 years ago. Sorry? 67. So it's 51, 51 years ago. That's right. Yeah, I was seven. Um, I remember it well. Actually, I don't. <laughs> Fairly soon after that, I remember things, but not that. Um, once people start to be able to talk and say, I am, and get away with it, and the collapse on fear about talking about it starts to happen. Well, you begin to get the place where we are now, which is that the question of what is good starts to become intrinsic again. The mock extrinsic, the civil law, the religious law, fear, convenience, all those other things, starts to disappear. And people start to talk. And people start to be able to see other people and be able to say, oh, yes, actually, they're no more screwed up than everybody else. Um, we're able to observe, we're able to see their patterns. Actually, we're able to observe something really quite interesting, which is that the more closeted they are, the less emotionally healthy they are and available for uh, relationships. And this, of course, has been particularly resisted in certain quarters. Until recently, it was particularly resisted amongst politicians, for reasons which we now regard as obvious, <laughs> because of the impact of the closet in the political life of our, uh, uh, of our nation. Just think of people who, when I grew up, were not known to be gay. And only afterwards, only after they died, did it come out. And also it came out of how traumatic, and people like the rather lovely George Thomas, I don't know whether you remember him, the former speaker, or Enoch Powell, famously, outed after his death, and at his request, by Canon Eric James, which earned Canon Eric James endless wrath from the usual press. <laughs> um, but actually, Enoch Powell had asked him to, to do that after his death. And later, my mother, who my mother and father were friends of, of the Powells, my mother said, well, we all knew Enoch was gay. <laughs> so just things that slightly strange world in which these things go on. But the other, of course, closest world, apart from soccer, is the church, <laughs> the clerical part of the church. Everything else has permeated to the presence of female co-workers at a level of more or less equality, if not yet of equality of pay. Um, but the, uh, at least in the structure of the Catholic Church, this has not yet reached the case. And what we have, and this is something that's worth thinking back as far as Newman in our culture, has been quite how, quite how much the issue of the closet as a merciful option recommended by genuinely pious people 
to other friends of theirs so as to attempt to enable them to survive at a time when things must have been very difficult. Um, that was clearly a very big part of why Newman recommended celibacy to so many of his followers. Not because he wanted to stop them getting married, <laughs> but because he didn't want them to <laughs> have to go through the business of the public shaming to do with having a publicly gay life <laughs> in the middle of the 19th century. <laughs> and you get the same, strangely, with the, in other countries with thinkers like Jacques Maritain. Some of you will have heard of uh, Jacques Maritain. It's quite extraordinary in retrospect, and this is something I've only very recently become aware of, quite how significant it is that all the great Catholic French writers of the <laughs> first three quarters of the 20th century were gay. <laughs> either it, with it often only becoming known either after their death or uh, it was known politely during their life, but people didn't comment on it. And quite how they all corresponded with each other. And, and this is particularly the case with Maritain, how influential they were on the Italian clergy. The friendship of Paul VI with Jacques Maritain and Paul Guitton, part of this club, no, uh, no surprise. This was part of people who lived in a very closeted and frightened world and trying to develop something instead of being publicly gay, which at that time meant rushing off to North Africa and having lots of, lots of boys somewhere in the desert where no one would, would notice it, right? <laughs> um, so the development of the notion of love of friendship and so on and so forth, which is terribly important to a whole generation of formation of the Italian clergy, including the highest clergy, <laughs> All of that is part of a no doubt fearful reaction to what was beginning to become talkable. And as the 20th century went on, became more and more talkable. So that you got, uh, if you like, a gradually more virulent closet as it got more and more under threat. And its principal power brokers, of course, kept it very much alive under John Paul and under uh, Benedict, and it's collapsing very evidently now. So it's not so much an understanding of natural law, which is long past itself by date, because as you become aware that there is a different orientation by definition, the acts that go with an orientation. The moment you realize that the orientation itself is not a pathology of any sort at all. And even the Wolfenden Commission in 1957, 10 years before the Act of Parliament, said that perfectly clearly. There is no evidence that there is any pathology associated with this, <laughs> with this condition, if you like. That's what I call a non-pathological minority variant within the human condition. The moment that becomes available, then in the attempt to describe the sexual act in such a way that it has to include a procreative element, is automatically ignoring who people are, and therefore people are deducing from that that there must be something wrong with them. 
and therefore that they ought to feel either guilty or crippled or go to confession a lot, or if possible, go to reparative therapy uh, when all these options start to become available. But what's really becoming available is the visibility and the talkability of, oh, actually, it is love. It's rather like other sorts of love. And people are <coughs> as screwy as they are. And as jealous, but also sometimes as unjealous. As bitchy, but also sometimes as, as kind as others. And so on and so forth. Which is, I hope, where we're coming to uh, now. But that, that gradual process of openness, and the terror that that inspired within a generation who'd been brought up to opt against what was in the 1920s and 1930s, clearly a very frightening reality that was beginning to open up, has left us, I think, with much of the row uh, that we see in our church, and actually we see in these very days, the Pope having to face down the Chilean hierarchy with relation to exactly this. What, what has been going on in Chile? I've lived there for several years, I've known some of these people. <laughs> A classic gay closeted cover-up by people who aren't themselves paedophiles of somebody who was in part of the typical don't throw stones in this glass house by people who, because they're so interested in preserving and protecting themselves, are unable to see the difference between that which is maybe naughty according to their system, but does no harm to anybody, and that which is evil and dangerous, because, oh, this is a, a glass house in which we don't throw stones. Well, eventually, someone has to say, actually, ah. <laughs> we need to make these distinctions, and these distinctions need to be visible for everybody. People need to be accountable according to this. No more glass house. No more not throwing stones. No more throwing stones either, but let's deal with this starting with a presumption of honesty. <laughs> and I'm afraid that that's the very, very difficult task that he's faced up with, because we all know what a good cover-up system any boys club <laughs> particularly any vice club, vice club that doesn't have significant female presence, <laughs> is good at. That's part of what is being worked through now. So, and this is the question I really wanted to leave you with, with, um, with Sarah. We live in a world in which, thank heavens, finally the impact of Christ in this area is beginning to become clear. There are no extrinsic rules in this area. There is that which we discover to be good. And we discover it through prayer and through loving over time. And we make mistakes. And we eventually do discover things that are objectively true about, objectively in our modern sense, true about humans. And we do discover certain things about how relationships work and how they don't work. And we have to be self-critical about that, as I'm very glad to say significant portions now of, uh, of the gay community are beginning to be. We're beginning to learn how to be self-critical about excessive drug use, excessive smoking, etc., etc., these kinds of things. Because we're aware that, not that there's anything wrong with being gay, but that we're so used to being in a defensive mode <laughs> that we haven't paid 
attention, we haven't had the possibility of paying attention to our unsocialized adolescences, which tend to come up then in our 30s and 40s and 50s <laughs> and take us on weird routes. Of course, that wouldn't be true of any of you here. <laughs> true, me at least. Um, <laughs> but what that means, I suspect, is that we're merely the canary in the mine shaft of what is happening in society at large as traditional forms of socialization of children and traditional forms of adolescence start to collapse before the almighty cell phone <laughs> and forms of courtship, how people learn how to relate, how people learn how to date, for which there have been until comparatively recently some kind of traditional rites of passage, at least for straight kids, but never for gay kids. <laughs> but they're collapsing for the straight kids. And I think that we're the, as I say, the canaries in the, in the mine shaft. <laughs> we've known that they'd collapse because we've never had them. And the question for me is, how are we going to start to create, deliberately, intentional forms of community life that are actually helpful? To each other. And naturally, the church has not helped us at all up until recently, because it hasn't permitted meetings like this, <laughs> or groups like this, uh, to get together, where we can start to share experience and start to try and help each other. We've known that everything is no longer lawful, so not, not everything is, nothing is illegal anymore. But the question of working out together what is helpful. <laughs> The one place where we've not been able to do that is in any church group, because they want to say, oh, no, no, everything about that is not helpful. <laughs> Which, of course, is the same, ultimately, as, as the moment you decree everything to be illegal, you make uh, everything necessary. <laughs> if, if, if everything is a sin, then nothing is a sin. Anything goes. That's the, that's the craziness of the church's position up until now. So... This is where I want to leave things with, uh, with, uh, with Sarah. What is the shape of the Catholicity that we are being asked to birth as LGBTQI people? In the midst of this history, which I think is genuinely a Christian history, strangely enough, of the beginning of the arrival in our midst of what the Gospel had actually promised in terms of collapsed extrinsic rules. As we start to be able to talk and put words like I and we to these issues, and therefore start to be able to humanise our emotions, our sexuality and our bodies, rather than running away from them in our own minds while letting them loose <laughs> on a long leash in practice, which has been how many of us have survived. How do we actually get back to inhabiting real bodies and real peaceful minds and souls as gay, lesbian, bigender, bisexual, transgendered, queer, intersex people who are actually at peace and wanting to contribute to each other's building up? So that's what I'd like to leave in the hands of. Sarah, who does this for a living in Australia. As I've seen, she actually has a church that attends to just these sorts of needs.
to know how to begin my contribution to the question of sexuality and the church this evening. And a bit more. Huh. Yes, I struggled to know how to begin my contribution, um, especially in such illustrious companies as James. So after a, a fair bit of casting around, I decided to take the advice of the opening stanzas of David White's poem, Start Close In. Start close in, he says. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in, the step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way of starting the conversation. Well, the pale ground beneath my feet, the ground I know, is Benedictus Contemplative Church the ecumenical worshipping community I lead in Canberra, in Australia. And so I'm going to start by sharing a snapshot of us. We're a mixed bunch in lots of ways, ranging in age from school children to 90-odd. We are teachers, counsellors, scientists, lawyers, doctors, retirees, carers and public servants. It is Canberra, after all. Our backgrounds denominationally are Anglican, Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Home Church, Churches of Christ and no fixed address. In relation to sexuality, we're also a mixed bunch. Straight and gay, married, partnered, single, widowed, divorced. And people live with all kinds of complexities. I think of the single people in our community, both straight and gay, looking for love and struggling at times with loneliness and the vulnerabilities of meeting, dating and commitment, and of others recovering from the trauma of sexual assault or childhood sexual abuse. I think of the gay couple, married for many years now, and the process of one partner transitioning gender and the lesbian couple in the midst of the same journey. There are the long-term celibate, married couples, the widowed, and those whose relationships are under strain or breaking apart. As for me, my partner is divorced, and we have, at least for now, chosen deliberately not to get married. And that's in large part because of how the so-called sanctity of marriage seems to have become, in some Christian circles, almost idolatrous, and of how this false sacred notion of marriage was weaponised against him by the church, he was also an Anglican priest, when his marriage was breaking down. As I said, we're a mixed bunch, and we live with all kinds of complexity. Tonight, we're focusing particularly on the question of LGBTQI people and the church. And as James has said so eloquently, and as you don't need me to tell you, often enough the church has been a profoundly unsafe space in this regard. And one of the things I find sad and somehow shaming is when I receive emails from people asking me whether Benedictus will welcome them, a gay person. A lesbian person. I hate the fact that such a question has to be asked, that the hospitality and safety of Christian community cannot be assumed. 
And in pastoral ministry, I see time and again what a struggle it can be for people to recover from the effects of ecclesial rejection and its surrounding theological baggage, such minor things as being threatened with eternal damnation, for example. I think of the woman in our community whose missionary parents would not speak to her after she came out over 20 years ago. Her mother died last year, unreconciled to the last. And there's another from a Baptist background whose relationship with the woman she loved was suffering but she, because she couldn't, deep down, believe it was okay with God. There are lots of stories like this. An obvious and deeply understandable reaction to this state of affairs is for LGBTQI people and those who care about them to want nothing to do with Christian community. A friend told me of being at an Anglican church synod once in one of the interminable debates on homosexuality, ordination and welcome for gay people. The tenor of this conversation was all about whether the church might or might not accept them and their ministry. Then a young gay priest got to his feet. He said the question his gay friends all asked him was what made him want to belong to this church anyway. Given what the church was like, why bother with it at all? All of a sudden, the synod got a glimpse of what it might be like to be talked about as them <coughs> and to be the ones rejected rather than assuming their entitlement to reject. It was a salutary moment. So to walk away from the church altogether is a deeply understandable reaction and one for which I have considerable sympathy. But if we're here tonight, then I guess there's something that doesn't quite satisfy about that response either. Because there's still the call of discipleship the call of Christ. There's still our vocation to become one in Christ, one in ourselves, our inner dividedness and woundedness healed, and one as a human family, so that, as the letter to the Ephesians puts it, the hostility that stands like a dividing wall between different groups may be broken down and a single new humanity brought into existence for the good of all and the glory of God. That's our vocation as disciples. The question becomes, how do we live this out? How do we be faithful to it in the sometimes difficult and hostile conditions of contemporary ecclesiality? And so I wanted to approach these questions by by asking in the first instance, what's at stake for Christian life in relation to our sexuality? It's sometimes said that the church is obsessed by sex, that it spends way too much energy poking its nose into the bedroom and pays not nearly enough attention to the boardroom, and so to issues of greed, corporate and government corruption, justice for the poor and the natural world. It shows up in a whole raft of ways, including in the energy of the church's advocacy around certain issues, as well as its assessments of Christian integrity. 
In my diocese, for example, every three years we have to be re-licensed as fit for ministry. There's a police check and a large number of questions pertaining to our personal lives. These are almost entirely focused around matters to do with sexual conduct, together with a few around addiction, drug and alcohol use, gambling. It's telling, it seems to me, that there are no questions at all to do with our financial dealings, our level of giving, our accumulation of property, or our ecological footprint. There seems to be something deeply awry. Having said that, I believe our sexuality is importantly connected to our Christian life and that the church isn't wrong to be concerned with matters of sexual integrity. That's because our bodies and what we do with them matters. John Main wrote, Our body is not just a means to salvation, which will be discarded when it has served its purpose, as in the Gnostic vision of the body. For the early Christian teachers, the body is the hinge of salvation. We are saved in our bodies, and the humanity of Jesus affirms this decisively. As you know, there's a persistent dualism in the Western tradition, from Plato's distinction between the body and the immortal soul, to Descartes' distinction between the body and mind, where the mind is assumed to be the seat of identity and the part of us that really counts. But Christianity stands against this dualistic vision of human being. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies, as Mark Cortez has written, and our salvation is wrought in us whole. The bodies matter. And just as in other dimensions of bodily life, so in relation to our sexual life, there are ways of being and behaving that diminish ourselves and others. This means, as James was saying, we need to discern our desires, our conduct, and learn what a proper sexual asceticism or discipline might be. The question becomes, of course, on what basis do we do so? Do we simply assume a conventional heterosexist morality as normative and divinely ordained? Or is there more to it? I've been helped, as well as by James, <laughs> but I've also been helped in my reflections on this question by Rowan Williams' brilliant essay, The Body's Grace. And I want to draw a little on that in what follows. Williams begins by saying something about the nature of sexual desire in general. He notes that we may find ourselves desiring someone, aroused by someone, without that other person being aware of it. But for my desire to persist and have some hope of fulfilment, I must let it be known. More than that, and here Williams quotes the philosopher Thomas Nagel, if my desire is to develop as it naturally tends to, it must be perceived as desirable by the other. That is, my arousal and desire 
must become the cause of someone else's desire. In other words, if my desire is to be freely expressed and consummated, the one I want has to want me back. <coughs> so he goes on. This means, crucially, that in sexual relation I am no longer in charge of what I am. Any genuine experience of desire leaves me in something like this position. I cannot of myself satisfy my wants without distorting or trivialising them. This is an intense case, he says, of the helplessness of the ego alone. And, what we and we necessarily experience it as a state of risk and vulnerability. He writes, For my body to be the cause of joy, for me, it must be there for someone else. It must be perceived, accepted, nurtured. And that means, in turn, that my body must be given over to the creation of joy in that other. Because only as directed to the enjoyment, the happiness of the other, does my body become unreservedly lovable. To, to desire my joy is to desire the joy of the one I desire. My search for enjoyment through the bodily presence of another is a longing to be enjoyed in my body. Part of what sexual love means on this understanding is a sense of the body's capacity to heal and enlarge the life of other subjects when we, truly, when we are truly with one another, giving ourselves to, one, to another. Writing of the sacrament of marriage, John Main puts it very simply. Each person does not become the full person they are called to be except in a relationship of love. And to love is to be other-centred. It seems to me that seen in this light, we understand how the language of desire and sexual union becomes an analogy in our tradition for the experience of desiring and being desired by God. There's the same vulnerability and other-centredness, the same giving over of the self as the condition of mutual delight and fulfilment. Well, if this kind of vulnerability and mutuality is what's involved in the undistorted expression and fulfilment of sexual desire, two points seem to follow. The first, it suggests how we might discern the nature of disordered or perverse sexual expression. Williams proposes that we understand this sexual perversion as sexual activity without this kind of risk. In other words, it's the attempt to retain control or to achieve my happiness, satisfaction and fulfilment without the risky and dangerous acknowledgement that my joy depends on someone else's, as theirs does on mine. Examples of this kind of perversion or distorted sexual activity would be where there is an unbalance in the relation, 
such that the desire of the other for me is irrelevant or minable to what I do. Rape, paedophilia, bestiality. So making this point about the mutuality, the, the kind of mutual self-giving and that where there's an imbalance in, in, in that, that's where there's risk of you know, distortion. If this is right, then it follows that discerning when particular forms of desire and sexual expression are sterile, undeveloped or even corrupt cannot be a matter simply of evaluating them with reference to their conformity to heterosexist norms. Instead, it calls us to attend to the meaning of particular relationships and the way they conduce or not to mutual integrity and joy, to the way they communicate grace. Williams dares to say that if what's fundamentally at issue in perverted sexual expression is that it leaves one agent in effective control of the situation, one agent, that is, who doesn't have to wait on the desire of the other, then this suggests that in a great many cultural settings, the socially licensed norm of heterosexual intercourse is itself a perversion. And later, he insists, that sexual union is not delivered from moral danger and ambiguity by satisfying a formal socio-religious criterion. Well, what I find profoundly helpful here is that it gives us a way of moving beyond a crude Christian rhetoric, heterosexual good, homosexual bad, while at the same time not resiling from the fact that we need to discern our desires and their enactment. In a Christian vision, sexual integrity is answerable to the good of the other and to the ways we may enrich, celebrate and grace one another. This integrity necessarily involves our deepening capacity for other-centeredness and fidelity, our coming to know and trust our own lovability, and our willingness to risk ourselves in giving and <coughs> receiving delight. And this means that properly Christian care for the nature of sexual desire and its expression should not be reduced to propping up a socio-religious norm, but rather should enable us to live as sexual beings in ways that conduce to our and others' well-being and joy. And this brings me to consider the way in which our deepening sexual integrity, our wholeness, is connected to the process of becoming one in Christ. We know how profoundly ambiguous sexual, <coughs> sexual intimacy can be. There are many subtle ways in which relationships of such vulnerability, risk and exposure can be occasions for the misuse of power and diminishment of self and others. There are obvious forms of abuse and betrayal. Interestingly, in Australia's Anglican Church at least, there have been revelations of quite significant levels of domestic violence in clergy families. 
But there are multifarious ways in which patterns of manipulation, coercion, cruelty, withholding and shame can characterise our sexual relationships. Sometimes deliberately and aggressively, but more often unconsciously and unwantedly. The outworking of deeper wounds, anxieties and habits of, <coughs> of self-protection. And here, I think, is where we see the connection between the process of maturing spiritually, the deepening reconciliation and integration of the self, and the possibility of sexual relationships that are more rather than less creative and generative of life. <coughs> At one level, this point is familiar. It's a common place of teenage sex education, for example, that girls <coughs> should overcome their low self-esteem so as to avoid being pressured into early sexual activity and risking unwanted pregnancy. It's all very well to say so. As I imagine we've all experienced one way or another, we can't overcome low self-esteem simply by exercising our willpower. Nor can we let go a sense of shame or habits of control, withholding or emotional manipulation so easily. And this is why our tradition testifies that healing of the deepest levels of self-alienation and dividedness is first and foremost the fruit of Christ's work among us. We love because he first loved us, says the first letter of John. Experiencing ourselves loved by God, accepted by God for no reason other than that's what God is like, means we need no longer strive for anything, <coughs> compete for anything, justify or defend ourselves. This is the meaning of salvation. And only as we begin to discover ourselves loved and accepted in this way, beyond all fear of rejection, including self-rejection, are we able simply to be ourselves and with one another as God is? The question is, how do we realise this salvation, this belovedness? How do we make it our own? Well, in the context of being reconciled to our sexuality, as we've already seen, it may require the unmasking of false conceptions of ourselves and God. It may involve discovering and speaking our truth, acknowledging and reclaiming all that's been suppressed and denied in us and between us. Yet almost paradoxically, what I want also to suggest is that this deep work of reconciliation and liberation is enabled through the disciplined and prayerful practice of silence, the practice of meditation. This is not at all the same as being silenced. Don't ask, don't tell. Rather, it's an entering of the silence that is, as John Main put it, filled with God's presence. There's a deep mystery here, 
But what we discover in the practice of meditation is that the more we enter into this silence, relinquishing thoughts and anxieties, self-criticism and self-defence, the more we discover ourselves sourced in and transformed by that reality of love which in silence welcomes us all. John Mayne again says, Meditation is a commitment to a silence in which we find our own roots in the eternal silence of God. A silence in which we enter into profound harmony and find ourselves in communion with ourselves, mm -hmm. with God and with other people. It enables us to become who we are. Meditation is not magic. It doesn't deliver us from the inevitable vulnerability of real personal intimacy or defend us against all hurt. But it does heal us at a deep level. It makes us less needy for the approval of the world and so less manipulable by the insecure sexual partner, by the pressure of social norms, by the hostility of the church. It frees us to be less self-conscious and inhibited, and so more fully, self, more fully expressed and generous with ourselves. It helps us to be more fully present, and so able to attend to the presence and wonder of the other, to be tender, to enjoy the beloved. Contemplative practice makes us better lovers, you might say, in every sense of that phrase. So, I've argued that the real questions of sexual integrity are not resolved by our conforming to licensed norms of what we now call heterosexuality and binary gender identity. Rather, these questions of integrity are to do with our capacity for self-giving, other-centred loving and mutual joy. And I've suggested that meditation is a profound practice for enabling us to realise the promise and possibility of sexual love as we become more deeply reconciled with ourselves through experiencing ourselves beloved by God. We began with the question of why LGBTQI people feel and often are rejected by parts of the church. Jesus tells his disciples that what constitutes them as the church and as participants in his ministry of reconciliation is their union with him. I am the vine and you are the branches, says the Jesus of John's Gospel. He who dwells in me as I dwell in him bears much fruit. Indeed, in the light of this mutual indwelling, he goes on, I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. To grow into oneness, union with Christ, is to become an insider to the project of the world's creation and redemption. 
it's to be called to radical maturity and discipleship. And this is the vocation and the meaning of church. I don't want to be glib about this. The fact that membership of Christ's body is not finally determined by our institutional acceptability doesn't excuse the injustice of our ecclesial institutions. It doesn't negate the damage inflicted on those who suffer its rejection and whose vocations and gifts for the church's ministry are systematically denied and frustrated. Even so, what's ultimately at stake here is much bigger than the question of institutional acceptance. The Quaker teacher Parker Palmer says that, <coughs> says that when way closes in front of you, you can spend all your energy banging on the door that's shut in your face, or you can turn around and see the whole world open to you, awaiting your contribution and your joy. And I wonder, as we are befriended by and one in Christ, how might we discern our part in his mission of love in the world? How might we be more fully reconciled to ourselves and so be agents of Christ's reconciliation for others? Even, dare we imagine, for the church itself. I began with the opening stanzas of David White's poem, Start Close In. Let its closing stanzas encourage us to trust in the path that is each of ours to tread. Start right now. Take a small step you can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start closing. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start closing. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, closing, the step you don't want to take.